Spike Milligan! Spike Milligan! We're here to discuss Spike Milligan! That's right, it's Muppeturgy, and we're here to discuss the Spike Milligan episode of The Muppet Show! Spike Milligan! Spike Milligan! Spike! Spike! It was already bad. Mel! It was already bad, and now you've made it worse by bringing Bye Bye Birdie into it. I'm very sorry, but not really at all. This has been giving me joy all week. Unlike this episode. Sorry, what were we doing? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We need to introduce ourselves. Hi, everyone. I am David Levy. Here today with me are... Michal Richardson, probably. Christy Bauer. And Adam Grossworth. And happy almost New Year. And we're sorry about Spike Milligan. And I guess not about the intro to the show. Spike... Mel, Mel. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 17 of The Muppet Show. The guest star is, as you might have imagined, (laughs) Spike Milligan. It was produced uh, December 12th, 1978, and it aired in New York on January 22nd, 1979. It was number 15 in the air order in between Marisa Berenson, which we have talked about, and Elkie Summer. In the news, the Pittsburgh Steelers have won the Super Bowl over the Dallas Cowboys. A tight budget was submitted to Congress by President Carter, intended to slow economic growth without precipitating a recession. We're in the future. We know how that went. Austerity for many social programs would result from the budget proposals, while the proposed defense budget of $122.7 billion, with a B, marks an increase of slightly more than 3% over the present fiscal year and stresses combat readiness in Europe and the modernization of nuclear forces. Yay. Fun. There is severe flooding in the New York metropolitan area. An author of a book on Scientology tells of her eight years of torment. That was a headline for the New York Times. Paulette Cooper published The Scandal of Scientology in 1971. Scientology sued her, then framed her for sending bomb threats. Which led to eight years of her life being in shambles. It just was like, given like the current state of Scientology and people coming out against it, I was like genuinely shocked to see the story in the paper in 1978 and uh, or 1979 rather, and that this book came out in 71. So yeah, I I wanted to call attention to that, and the book is uh, still available if you are interested in reading it and want to get on the bad side. Yeah. There's an ad for NBC, not in the TV section. There is an ad in the newspaper for public service announcements on NBC. Uh, Nutrition with Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop. So the ad is basically saying, watch NBC, and at some point you might see these ads. Are the ads actually to then go and look at the newspaper so that you might see the ad for the ad? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I found one on YouTube that we'll put in the show notes. I was hoping for more. I just found it so strange. It's the ad that never ends. <laughs> yeah, it's just eating its lamb choppy tail. On the Cashbox pop charts, the number one song is La Freak, and the number one album is Billy Joel's 52nd Street, so not much changing there. On TV, uh, a slight correction. Uh, in the last episode, I said that In Search Of was before The Muppet Show on Channel 2. It was actually opposite it on Channel 4 this How week. How dare you? I How know. How dare you? I'm so, so terrible. Uh, this week, In Search Of Animal ESP. My entire life. <laughs> I gotta find In Search Of and watch some of this. Because uh, who doesn't love Leonard Nimoy? 
Uh, on CBS, we have a special George Burns 100th birthday party. He was 83. <laughs> hey, some people like to throw multiple birthday parties in the same year. I mean, that was the joke. So, you know, I get it. More power to him. It was hosted by Goldie Hawn and Andy Gibb. So sure, much why shiny not? blonde hair. So little time. Uh, featured Johnny Carson, Bob Hope, Steve Martin, Milton Berle, and Debbie Boone, among others. Uh, the five was- people you meet in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was followed by MASH, WKRP, and Lou Grant, our usual lineup. Uh, on NBC, Little House, Dance With Me, a hard-drinking drifter, and a very prim and proper woman take a shine to one another. Oh, that old story. Isn't that like what? Bright Star? <laughs> Kinda. <laughs> Okay, so imagine if Bright Star had starred Ray Bolger and Eileen Heckert. <laughs> no. This was 90 minutes for some reason. I did start to watch it, and then I stopped because I'm worth it. That was followed by the TV movie Institute for Revenge. John Schroeder heads up an organization founded to correct wrongdoings committed against the defenseless with Leslie Nielsen, George Hamilton, and Ray Walston. On ABC, Fantasy Island, which uh, premiered last season but has not been on Monday nights with us before, the episode is entitled "Cowboy Slash Substitute Wife." So super one creative. Two people. Uh, it's, I think it's the two different storylines in Fantasy Island. So super creative <laughs> episode titling there. Mister mm-hmm. Rourke gives a man a chance to be a rodeo star and a woman the opportunity to pick her husband's next wife. Uh, these are streaming, and I may have to switch from oh Little House to Fantasy Island. I hope she picks the rodeo star. <laughs> I don't think the storylines coincide, but that would be great if they just, <laughs> everything just crosses over. I mean, one would think. Uh, Video uh, killed the rodeo star. Uh, <laughs> I, I was doing it too. Oh, listeners, we are punchy this week. Hey, tonight, our very special guest is one of England's wildest comedians, Mr. Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan, actually an Irish comedian, best known as one of the core members of The Goon Show. Spike was born Terence Allen Patrick Sean Milligan in India to a military family. He took on the name Spike because he hated the name Terence, but loved Spike Jones. After a childhood spent in India and Burma, he moved to England as a teenager. Following high school, he began a career as a jazz musician and singer before following in his father's footsteps and joining the army just in time to serve in World War II. As you might remember from our Peter Sellers episode, it was during the war that Milligan joined up with Sellers, Harry Seacombe, and Michael Benteen to create the comedy troupe that would eventually become The Goon Show. The Goon Show, if you don't remember, it's a British radio comedy program, which was originally produced and broadcast by the BBC Home Service, and ran from 1951 to 1960. I think outside of the UK, The Goon Show is largely remembered as the show that set the stage for Monty Python to do the same thing a little bit better a decade later on TV. Uh, I'm just going to read the following quote from Wikipedia. Although the goons elevated Milligan to national stardom, the demands of writing and performing the series took a heavy toll. During series three, he had the first of several serious mental breakdowns, which also marked the onset of a decades-long cycle of manic-depressive illness. In late 1952, possibly exacerbated by suppressed tensions between the goon stars, Milligan apparently became irrationally convinced that he had to kill Sellers, but when he attempted to get entry to Sellers' neighboring flat, Armed with a potato knife, he accidentally walked straight through the plate glass front door. He was hospitalized, heavily sedated for two weeks, and spent almost two months recuperating. Fortunately for the show, a backlog of scripts meant that his illness had little effect on production. He later blamed the pressure of writing and performing the Goon Show for both his breakdown and the failure of his first marriage. 
From the 1950s onward, he also worked on television, including one show where he appeared in Brownface that was canceled after six episodes because of complaints that it was racist. Uh, This was in 1969, so imagine just how racist it had to have been. The same year, he played himself in a TV movie dramatizing his nervous breakdown, and he launched the series Q on the BBC, which was a sketch comedy show that would run off and on through 1982. Throughout the 60s, he also had a successful stage career, both as an actor and a writer. Perhaps most notably, in 1964, he tried his hand at drama in a play called Oblomov, adapted from a Russian novel, and it was a big flop. But rather than close the show, the producers gave him carte blanche to improvise, and he turned it into a comedy that was soon redubbed Son of Oblomov, and went on to run for 559 performances. Among its ardent fans was the young Prince Charles, who would become a personal friend of Milligan's in the years that followed. He also wrote poetry. His most popular poems were literary nonsense. That's actually a genre, the best-known example of which for Americans might be Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, which we're going to talk about on the Brooke Shields episode. Milligan's best-loved poem is On the Ning Nang Nong, which is among the ten most commonly taught poems in primary schools in the UK, where they call them primary schools. He also wrote serious poetry, largely during his depressive episodes. He was married a number of times and had a number of children, including an indeterminate number out of wedlock. He was a very committed environmentalist, and he spoke out against domestic violence. Milligan died from kidney failure in 2002 at the age of 83. Uh, so I have a vague familiarity with the Goon Show, uh, but otherwise just absolutely had never heard of Spike Milligan or any had any real context for him uh, prior to, really prior to our Peter Sellers episode. Wondering if any of you had any uh, any experience with Spike Milligan? Not before Not this whatsoever. week. Nope. All right, then. I watched one episode of The Telegoons, which was a, a televised adaptation of The Goon Show. And I figured this is 15 minutes long and it's got puppets, but I, I regretted those 15 minutes of my life. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, I listened to some Goon Show radio episodes that I found on Spotify and choosing them at random, they all seemed uh, pretty racist. And so I just gave up. Anyway, that's going to be a theme tonight, so let's get going. Why don't you get well, on that note, <laughs> Christy, what did you think? Not to do a Meisner exercise on you, but what was that? What was that? What was that? <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I, I want my money back. I, I, I would take Rich Little back over that. Oh, oh the, no! I, I, Boy. I mean, I. I recognize that, you know, we, we've got a couple of seasons left to, you know, change this opinion, but that that's the worst episode of The Muppet Show that I have seen to date. No question. Michal, top that. Well, this episode jumped into my bottom five before we even got through the opening theme song. It has a few laughs going for it. Um... And unfortunately, it also has Spike Milligan and wall-to-wall racism. And between the guest star and the sheer volume of just outrageously offensive moments, the fact that an episode this deeply upsetting exists at all is, it, I guess it shouldn't be that surprising, but it still kind of astonishes me. It's not my least favorite episode of The Muppet Show, but it's, it's, it's right down there. 
David? I found this episode heartbreaking on a couple of levels. One, that this comes so soon after Harry Belafonte. Like, I just don't understand how the people who put the Muppet Show together, A, can create these two things at such wildly different ends of the quality spectrum, but also how they didn't grow and learn from the experience of working with Harry Belafonte and that this is what they come up with. It just is boggling to me. The other part is that there are some parts of this that are so close to good, but then get marred by the incursion of racism. And I know some of that is about what was appropriate for the time that we now know is just totally inappropriate. But a lot of it is stuff that I I think even for the time they had to know, had to know was just, gross. Even the parts that I, I want to be able to lift up, I can't because they have these moments, these characters, these whatever. So, fair. Yeah, I, uh, I I come closest to David's uh, assessment. Like, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I mean, it's the racist stuff is indefensible. I will, I will probably never watch any of this again. Apparently, it's not on Disney Plus in Europe. And if they had made the same choice here, I would be fine with it. But I didn't I didn't hate it. I mean, I didn't like it, right? It's 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 at the bottom. It's it's in my bottom ten. I don't know that it's in my bottom five, even though, because there were enough like little moments in it that I I did like. I don't know if it's like like the cumulative effect of like Peter Sellers and Peter Ustinov and and James Coco and Don Knotts and even Steve Martin. Like at this point, I just look at Spike Milligan and I'm like, eh, it's 1978. Like I don't get it. It's not funny to me, but. I wasn't bothered by his very existence in in the way that that some of you seem to be from some of the conversations we were having offline. Um, I was bothered by some things he did, which we will definitely talk about. Like I, I, I do not want to defend Spike Milligan, like on the whole. But you know, the rest of the episode, I th- I think that they were trying to parody the sort of overly earnest '60s '70s variety show kumbaya thing that was popular at this time. And we'll get into like why I thought that as we get to those moments. They absolutely could have done that without racist caricatures and without Spike Milligan being a lunatic. So, you know, again, I, I am in no way defending the episode as a whole, but parts of it worked for me. And that's, I, I sort of came away from it having enjoyed it more than, say, Danny Kay. And so, like, if we hadn't just watched Danny Kay last week, I might, I might feel differently. I will add that it took me until my third watch to even enjoy any part of this episode because during my first couple of watches, I was just so upset and offended and flabbergasted by the racism. And then on my third watch, I was still flabbergasted by the racism. And I also noticed that there were jokes that I had been too mad to notice before. So yeah, I get what everybody is saying about how there's, (sighs) there's a lot going on and it's hard to lift up the parts that maybe deserve to be lifted up. Adam, I'm looking at the spreadsheet where you and I are keeping our, our rankings of episodes, and I see an asterisk by Spike Milligan. Is the asterisk, there were some jokes amid the racism? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a racism asterisk, right? It's like, it should be lower, right? Like, I, I, I recognize, mm-hmm. like, it's it's indefensible, actually, I think, t- to not put it the lowest, because it's fucking racist, and it's it the, shouldn't... It's the most like, racist. Like, no one should watch. I guess, <laughs> I guess what I would... If, if, if I were... If we if we ever like publish these rankings, right? If it if 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 these rankings ever turn into like a this is a list of the episodes you should watch, I will tell people don't watch this episode. Right. Even if it's not at the bottom, they still shouldn't watch the episode. 
it's not at the bottom of my personal list because I enjoyed parts of it more than I enjoyed mm-hmm. parts of Rich Little. But that doesn't mean I would tell other people to watch it, right? That's I guess that's why the asterisk is there. <laughs> anyway, so that said, um, I want to just issue uh, a blanket a blanket content warning in to case our you listeners. Haven't figured out what's coming. In case you haven't figured it out, there's some racist stuff in this episode. Um, I tried to keep the worst of it out of the clips, um, but your boundaries may vary, uh, as I think we've already established ours do. And there's just no way to talk about the episode without talking about at least some of it. I don't think we're going to describe much of it in detail, but you know we're going to talk about it. So if that's not for you, we get it. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks for the Leslie Uggams episode, which I haven't rewatched yet. So I don't know, no promises. <laughs> But yeah, uh, you know, hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation. But if you need to check out, totally understand. Come in, knock, knock. Spike Milligan? Yes. 30 seconds of curtain, Mr. Milligan. It's 30 seconds of the curtain. It's five foot 11 to the floor. I'll take the curtain. <laughs> Say, well, what's that you're wearing? My family crest. Well, what's that? A coat of arm. Spike Milligan is indeed wearing a coat of many arms, which is a neat visual gag and i can't explain whatever else he said oh my god when when he said come in knock knock in my first watch i was like oh i am in for something exhausting and i i <laughs> checked it, it is the literal two second mark of the episode <laughs> <laughs> i was just like oh no yep strap <sighs> in it doesn't like i understood what he said literally what he said but what? Come in, knock, like, knock. It, it's yeah. 30 seconds to the curtain. It's 5 foot 11 to the floor. So I'll take the curtain. I guess the distance between what? his the top no, I, of his head yes, and the floor. I, I mean, I tried to figure it out and I'm trying to explain right. no, it. No, I mean, you, I, I understood it's, like it's, it's the two measurements. And so he's choosing, but he's choosing whether to lie down or go to the state. What? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. And Danny Kay is the one that got hit on the head? <laughs> I mean, that's also the thing. Like, it's kind of the same. It's the same energy. And I didn't like the Danny Kay bit either, right? It's the same shtick. I did appreciate the visual gag. Like, I, I you know, the pun. I love that. It's also it's, there's something very labyrinth about all those hands. <laughs> Spike I, I gotta be a pedant down. about it. <laughs> right? He's like, he says, oh, it's my family crest. And he says, what is it? It's my coat of, it's a coat of arms. It's the same thing. A coat of arms is a family crest. They had to lead up to it somehow. <sighs> Oh, see, I didn't. I didn't think that was a problem. I thought that was like Scooter not knowing what a family crest is, and then him giving him a different term for it. Okay, fine, fair enough. It was funny until we thought about it too hard. Let's keep going. Well, that's what we do, and I thought about it right away. But I did like the the pun. I appreciate the pun. <sighs> Adding this to the list of things that'll make you write off the episode before you've even begun. Stetler and Waldorf have a visitor in their box this week. How much to get things started? Okay, so it's a guy with a keffiyeh, a Middle Eastern accent, and wearing sunglasses, and he's just hanging around in their box trying to haggle. And I don't know whether Arab guy who tries to haggle is a stereotype, but I'm I'm getting the sense so. that oh, yeah. yeah, that in the '70s it like must have shop, been. You know? Well, right, right, I get it. I I mean, I I guess that this was the kind of like we made the reference, and that's going to entertain you, kind of joke. And he right. was in this. This puppet was in the Helen Reddy episode, haggling over the camel. The line itself isn't necessarily horrifically offensive. Just as soon as he came on, I was like, I get the feeling that this is a harmful stereotype, even though I don't have evidence one way or the other. 
Anyway, here's a fun thing <laughs> that's actually fun. Uh, when Gonzo tries to blow his trumpet, Beautiful Day Monster shows up inside the O with Gonzo and then just starts bouncing Gonzo like a basketball. And you know what? I love that. Real cute. Delightful. Let's go backstage. Yeah, Muppet Show backstage. So this week, our backstage plot, or at least our theme on stage and off, is racism. Or, you know, what passed for international goodwill at the time and now is anywhere between squicky and unthinkably offensive. Uh, which means this week we get the long, unskippable disclaimer from Disney+. Plus. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, we especially wanted Spike on the show because tonight we're presenting an international extravaganza. You see, we just learned that The Muppet Show is being shown in 108 different countries. Uh-oh. Better get out your old army uniform. Yes, with 108 angry countries, there's bound to be trouble. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're going to have on our show people from every one of those 108 countries. Before we get into all of it, I just want to point out that Jim's Mississippi is really showing because both Kermit and Waldorf say 108. <laughs> Charming. It is. It, it's just it. It's rare that it really sticks out like that. But I, I think, but both of them saying it back to back was like, oh, yeah. Cute. There's Jim. Cute accent. <laughs> Why did they especially want Spike on the show for this? Because he's capable of offending in the bio all hundred and eight countries. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he was famously associated with four different countries. Right. He grew up in India and then in Burma, and then he's. And then in England, but he's an Irish citizen, which, by the way, is because he's an Irish citizen because England is kind of fucking racist. And even though he was like born to a member of the British military because he wasn't born in England itself, he therefore had Irish citizenship. It's like a whole thing. Huh. Okay. Sure. I'll buy that. I mean, or they would have done it with whatever guest star they had. But, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, also perhaps because one of the hallmarks of the Goon Show is they all like to put on brown face and play uh, people from other countries. Uh, yeah. Delightful. Which I know the Goon Show was mostly on the radio, but I still assume that they were browning up for it. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering when you said they put on brown face, like for, for the radio? Maybe. So that's what's going on on The Muppet Show this week. It maybe was well-intentioned or maybe was a parody of more of the earnest, well-intentioned things that were going on at the time. Piggy gushes to Kermit that it's humanitarian and she so admires him for doing it. And then, you know, in practice, it's depictions of every group the Muppets can think of to varying degrees of offense, both to the the characters uh, and to the audience. Okay, what's next? Uh, music of Scotland, music of Scotland on stage, please. Right, lad, right here, ready to go. Uh, what are those? They're my bungos. <laughs> we'll have a wee bit of primitive island rhythms. A bonnie Glasgow samba. Are you going to get your bagpipes? Oh, man. So, I mean, this is one of the parts that I think kind of works. And, and I, this is sort of what I was talking about earlier. Like, I think, I think the joke is that the guy is Scottish and he wants, he wants to play the music he wants to play. And Kermit is forcing him to perform a stereotype. I don't think it's that successful. I don't think it's that funny. And ultimately, you know, it is one of the Muppet performers doing an accent and the joke sort of ends up boiling down to ha ha funny accent. So like, it's not great. Um, and it isn't even, you know, racist. It's, it's Scottsist. Um, well, use but, of the word primitive, is right. Racist. Yeah. No. It, there's like a bunch of bad stuff 
wrapped up in it. Um, <laughs> but I yeah. think you're right in terms of the intention. But I think that I think it it illustrates the intention, and it's one of the one of the less offensive <laughs> moments. Um, but yeah, it does it does also illustrate that it it a lot lot of ac- lot of questionable accents on this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could see a world where like that's that's the joke that the Scottish guy wants to perform a, a song from his favorite country that's somewhere other than Scotland and yeah, or even yeah. just like you know my my Scottish music is samba, right? Like I'm Scottish and this is my music. I mean, when they perform the American bit, it'll well we'll get there. Yeah. Anyway, backstage, all these multinational muppets milling around gets a bit unwieldy. There are different groups who are sharing dressing rooms with each other and get into kerfuffles. Spain and Sweden declare war on each other. There's one altercation that leads to a dressing room being set on fire. Come on, boys, get out of there. Bring up the water hoses. Use the fire extinguisher. Just clip that so I could note how happy I was that the Muppet Theater has apparently acquired a fire extinguisher since the Roy Clark episode. I'm glad you can finally breathe a sigh of relief. I just was, was very pleased. <laughs> Once a stage manager, always a stage manager. Yeah. Well, Scooter's a terrible one, apparently. So. <laughs> uh, we do manage a smidge of unity among all these nations with the help of the Swedish chef. It's just a mess around here today. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lack of international understanding. Oh, I'll say. <laughs> Nobody on the show tonight can understand anybody else. Oh, yeah? How do you explain that? <laughs> you're good. You're just foreign to hearing me here. Yeah? Yeah. It's foreign. You been going to burn the here going for it. It's foreign. You've been hearing the bird. Yeah. It's a big old fjord. It's my linoleum. Oh, man. I'm going on stage. It's too weird around here for me. <laughs> I like that the punchline is linoleum. I don't know yeah. why that's so cute, but it is. <laughs> Very funny. Is Floyd the MVP of this episode? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's pretty pretty, great. I mean, he's always pretty chill. But yeah, this episode, he seems to be holding everything together. Another moment of understanding comes to us from Miss Piggy. To have the citizens of the world on our little stage, Mm -hmm. all races and colors, hand in hand, in brotherhood. Uh-huh. Uh, stand by for the Parade of Nations. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Parade of Nations. Uh, stand by for the Parade of Nations. The Parade of Nations. All right. Knock it off. It's the Brotherhood bit. Frank Oz is so good at his job. When she says it's the Brotherhood bit, Piggy is like looking right into the camera and kind of tossing the line over her shoulder, like the, the the little flourish of her head there when she's just like speaking and doesn't even bother turning around when she's yelling at everybody backstage. Miss Piggy's great. I did enjoy this one bit and maybe everybody can yell at me for enjoying an offensive thing. They wonder what all the Australians are doing on the ceiling. And I think that making fun of Australians for standing on their heads all day is still pretty funny. Maybe future me will be mad at current me for this. I actually Googled. <laughs> like, Are Australians is, is offended Colin when Australians we say this upside down offensive? <laughs> and I found like the, the suggested results were like upsetting. Oh, no. Because apparently a lot of people 
a lot of people are confused about how the earth and gravity work and actually google like are australians upside down and i was just like okay so so that happened and just made me sad for america I just like the way John Oliver describes it of like, that's the way things are in Australia. Everybody's tired from standing on their head all day. There is like, there is a thing I did find actually was looking that there is a thing about sort of like Northern hemispherocentricism. That's not, I don't know. Um, but you know, like, like just, you know, cause everything is sort of geared to us and it's actually apparently sometimes, sometimes maps are what we would call upside down in Australia. <laughs> is not actually doesn't there's no like up and down it's a sphere but you know the they just changed the perspective on it um mm-hmm. so i did learn that today before we move on just an, a bit of extra pedantry and muppeturgy continuity <laughs> uh, oh i i think you're stomping ruin the souffle that is the stomping of we are told Luis Greco, the Morse code flamenco dancer, uh, who Robin introduces to Kermit. Um, we've seen a few whatnots in this costume before. I mean, we've seen this puppet before, but there were like a whole slew of them, uh, most notably in the James Coco episode. And at the time, I questioned the combination of costume, music, and dancing, but it was all very vague, and I'm not an expert, so I let it go. But this time, because they specifically call him a flamenco dancer, I did some research, and he is definitely in a mariachi costume and not a flamenco costume, and those are not even from the same continent. He was holding castanets, though, right? Well, he was, and he, you know, like, in this episode, he is doing something like flamenco dancing, which I think is kind of normally what what they're doing but the costume is mariachi so <laughs> so he was I, like, holding not necessarily the offensive just lazy <laughs> yeah yeah i i presume that the the muppet costuming department was pretty busy this week <laughs> but yeah sure fair enough sure and i think that was sort of my confusion in the previous episode was that like they were doing like they were just sort of like it's spanish <laughs> It's fine. They're speaking Spanish and they're dancing, which is kind of what's happening here too. But, you know, Mexico, Spain, not the same thing. I am stealing myself for this. Um, (laughs) We we have uh, a handful of songs to talk about that are fun to talk about in other contexts, but in this context, blech. Let's just play a clip of our opening number. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. As it turns out. Okay. Um, oh, oh no. Oh no. Opening number. Uh, oh, no. I thought there was no way that anything could be more upsetting than the last time I heard this song performed. And the last time I heard the song performed, it was performed by people covered in blood. So... Uh, <laughs> that made sense. <laughs> Chrissy uh, lives in a rough neighborhood full of yeah. people being a roughie. <laughs> At least you were full of cornbread uh, that time. It's true. Really good cornbread. Still bitter about the cornbread, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> this is unfortunately not a Daniel Fish's Oklahoma podcast. So yeah, so this is this is Oklahoma. If, if you 
didn't know, but made racist. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the song Oklahoma. Just a couple of quick fun facts before we dig into what this is. Yeah, so if you don't know, Oklahoma, title song from the musical Oklahoma, Rodgers and Hammerstein from 1943. And uh, it, it is, in fact, the state song of Oklahoma. It was adopted in 1953. It unseated a song called Oklahoma, a toast by Mrs. Harriet Parker Camden, Oklahoma, which had been uh, a toast. Okay. <laughs> I I found cl- clips, but not a full version of it online. It, it's very charming, but very kind of, you know, old timey parlor song. Mm-hmm. This song at least has a bit more pep to it. It's some, more something that you would want to sing at a sporting event, assuming that you would want to sing a show tune at a sporting event. Who wouldn't want to sing a show tune at a sporting event? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, our our crowd uh, would would be of that ilk. But you never know. Some people just hate show tunes. And, and we, we we pray for these people. <laughs> the thing that's funny is that before 1935, Oklahoma did not have a state song. So, you know, poor Harriet Parker Camden, her song was only the state song for, I can do math, 18 years. You guys know me and how much I love weird lists of rankings of pop culture. The Western Writers of America chose Oklahoma as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time, but I don't know where they ranked it. So yeah. I couldn't find the actual list just that they did it. And yeah, let's, let's talk about what's actually happening here. So Fozzie thinks he's doing Oklahoma and he's dressed as a cowboy and that's cute in and of itself, but he wanders into a bunch of really racist stereotypes about japan and japanese people including some like straight up racist whatnots straight like racist by design whatnots they've got exaggerated eyes they've got the like conical hats and and i looked into because at first i was like i don't even associate those hats with japan i associate them more with china let me learn about these hats Mm -hmm. and i learned that in in japan they are more explicitly associated with uh, like Buddhist monks and Buddhist pilgrims. So not only are they insulting <laughs> uh, a country of people, they're also insulting a religion. It's really bad. Really and bad. this isn't even the worst Japanese stereotype we're going to see in this episode. No, indeed not. No. Remember in Turn the World Around when they went out of their way to make sure the masks were not... <laughs> Anything religious that might offend anybody? You know... Yeah, in this one, they didn't get the hats from the right country. Look, to be fair, they didn't have Google. How would they know? True. So, what kills me about this is, as unfortunate as this is, I think there's an inkling of something funny hiding in this that they just were too lazy to stick the landing on. And I mean, a part of that is the time, but like... Fozzie thinking that he's about to perform in Oklahoma and it being Yokohama is funny. Yeah. I think there is a way that they could have executed this in a non stereotype laden way. Like maybe if like the, the rest of the lyrics had been translated into Japanese. I, I agree with you. Like the, the, I don't, I don't know enough to know if the arrangement is racist, uh, it's pretty oh, racist. Uh, yeah, it is, right? It, it relies on stereotypes. That, that orientalism. At the very yeah. least. Well, and it, and it relies on a 
stereotype that is not actually rooted in genuine Japanese or even Asian music. It's like, right. You know, this, I mean, the set is, is, is pretty, if not, if not accurate. Um, and it starts with the the mutations as samurais, and they're doing this sort of sword dance. It's by Jillian Lin, and it 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 feels like it could have been research. Probably it wasn't. I get it, but like, yeah, and you know, Frank Oz good at his job. So it's sort of like it starts off. And I'm like, this is fun, and then those those whatnots appear, and it's like, oh god, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, no. that's the thing. If it had been just the mutations doing the sword thing on this pretty but not heavily researched set, then we would have been sitting here saying. This was interesting, maybe problematic, but this was fun to watch. And then there's this chorus of racist Muppets. Yeah. Who, and I, I guess I thought the joke was, you think they're going to say Oklahoma, but then they morph it into say, chanting Yokohama at you just because those words sound funnier to us than Oklahoma. Like, I guess that was the joke. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Like, I think to Christy's point, right? Like the joke could have been a more deliberate mashup or, or just, or just do, or the audience that like Fozzie's not confused. The audience thinks you're going to do Oklahoma and you actually do Yokohama. And it's actually like a properly researched, not offensive piece. And, and like, that could be funny too, but that's not what happened. Right. That's, you know, that's just, this is what happened. (laughs) Where is the land of the rising sun? I don't know. I never get up that early. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so our next piece is from our bagpiper who doesn't want to be a bagpiper trying to resist stereotype. And uh, he almost succeeds. <laughs> Trigger warning for the sound of bagpipes if you're listening on headphones. <laughs> apologize if that comment offended Scottish people. I just find it very unpleasant personally. It offended the anthropomorphized bagpipes in this sketch. So what we're listening to, not that you would know, <laughs> because I, I, I'm one of those people that bagpipes just sound like bagpipes, no matter what they're playing. And, you know, and I've been exposed to a lot of bagpipe playing in my time because my high school mascot was the Highlander and they made a poor kid play the bagpipes every year. God bless. And yet it instilled no appreciation in me whatsoever. Um, I this is the Highlander was that guy with all the pins coming out of his face. That's a Hellraiser. That's Hellraiser. Oh. <laughs> Highlander is there could be only one. So this is a song called Brazil. The full original title is Aquarela do Brazil, which translates to Watercolor of Brazil. It was written by a guy named Ari Barroso in 1939. But in the English-speaking world, it's known just as Brazil. And it's one of the most famous Brazilian songs of all time. What's really funny is Ari Barroso very deservedly gets a lot of shit from Brazilians for the original lyrics because they're so redundant. Like the the first line literally translates to Brazil, my Brazilian Brazil. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's, it's not, not super deep, but yeah, Ari Barroso was in addition to being a composer and pianist, just like a personality 
he was a soccer commentator. He hosted talent shows on TV. And he also wrote several songs for Carmen Miranda. But the wildest thing is, I don't know this song at all. And yet it is... Really? Yeah, I don't know it at all. And it's purportedly one of the 20 most recorded songs of all time. Oh my God, I feel like this song is everywhere. Never heard it before in my life. Have you ever seen the movie Brazil? No. Well, okay. So first of all, you should watch. So I guess I've heard it before in my life because I've seen the movie Brazil, but. And you've never seen Saludos Amigos? Also, yes. Oh, at some point. It's been, yeah, at some point, but it's been a long time. But yeah, lots of people of uh, interest to us have recorded this, including my boyfriend, Harry Belafonte and Nota Joe Raposo, Sam Frank Sinatra. Um, (laughs) Did you go and listen to the Sinatra version? I did not. So I, I wonder if you were to listen to it, if you'd be like, oh, it's that song. Probably. Because like with a swing and beat to it, it, it is different enough that maybe that's why. Yeah. I don't know. Just speculating. Brazil, where hearts were entertaining June. We stood beneath an amber moon. And softly murmured someday soon We kissed And clung together then. But yeah, it did come to worldwide popularity thanks to being included in Saludos Amigos in 1942. And it was voted by uh, the Brazilian edition of Rolling Stone, a thing I did not know existed, as the 12th greatest Brazilian song. So, that's something. Great. I do. I mean, I do think like now that you said that about the song and I'm sort of like thinking about it in my head, like, yes, of course I've heard the song before, but it's really hard to recognize on bagpipes. Oh, I, I recognized it immediately and started laughing. Like I got the joke, especially because he had just talked about Brazil wanting to play a samba. So like, well, right. My- so that, wait, that's what I was about to say. But it was like, the joke is only a joke if you understand what the song is. <laughs> yeah. I just I thought not. it was bagpipe music. I thought it was funny when and, the bagpipes came to life, though. Less funny when he shot them. Oh, I loved when he shot them because I mean, then they stopped playing. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's just it's interesting. It's, I'm I'm sort of relieved to know that you that you got it right away, David, because I, I I I was questioning like, would a 1978 audience have have gotten it? And it sounds like they would have. So I mean, would the children in the audience probably? No, 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 it? sure, but that's okay. This one's for the grandpas. <laughs> so. Our UK spot is a bit of a walk in the park. Me and my dog have a date, it is a rendezvous With a poodle who is French and her mistress on this afternoon Then uptown we go for a meeting there with Klaus He's a German shepherd, he's the watchdog of the house We better move right along, we've dozens more to meet Where's the place to meet dogs? Why out here on the street? This is a song called Dog Walk By a name that we haven't discussed in a while But, uh, remember Paul Tracy? Do I ever? Uh, yeah, if you if you don't remember who Paul Tracy is, this is the final of uh, I'm pleased to report his four songs that the Muppet Show used. The others were the ugly song and the Milton Berle episode that was sung by the Monsters and Frackles, Wishing Song, which was the sort of plaintive song that Gonzo sang that Madeline Kahn interrupted sort of 
And then something's missing in the Rudolf Nureyev, where it was like, at one point he didn't have an eye, at one point he didn't have an ear, you know. I have no beef with any of those songs. This is fine. The other three I really like. I hate them so much, and I hate this one the most. (laughs) I'm shocked that there's only four of them. It feels like he's been a much bigger presence, and maybe that's just because mentally I've combined him with Abe Burroughs. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Yeah, this, I, hmm. The Wishing Song isn't bad. Yeah, it's okay. But the others, I'm like, eh. I did have a bit of an incel vibe. Yeah. So Paul Tracy himself posted uh, this clip on YouTube, and this is what he had to say about it. The Muppets had to make some changes in this song when they took my original version and illustrated it for their show. When I sing this song live, it's part song and part dog impression. That sounds fun. With lots of panting between verses. See my comments that go with my original audio of Dog Walk. Of course, I was delighted the Muppets chose to use my song, but I was not too happy when I heard how their singer changed the rhythm of the lyrics and put the emphasis on the wrong syllables. I suppose this is how all songwriters feel when someone else sings their stuff. Not exactly. Um, oh, oh well, I can't complain. It's a wonderful credit that I've used for years that the Muppets used four of my songs on The Muppet Show. I mean, the scansion is so terrible that I don't, how could you tell where the emphasis is supposed to go? Well, yeah. I think the biggest difference is if you listen to his original version, the rhythm is much more regular. And here it gets a little more syncopated. So, yeah. like in the original, it's more like da 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 da. And here it's more like da 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 da, and so I could see that being annoying. Although, I actually think it's maybe yeah, well, he's annoying. Without lyrics, I think it's a little better that way. Yeah, but I think with the lyrics, it makes the lyrics even more awkward than they already are, which is yes, fairly I, awkward to begin with. I listened to the original and sort of couldn't hear the difference because I was so distracted by the way nothing like. You know, words like Dalmatian don't actually fit into either rhythm you just sang, so I, I didn't understand. But anyway. Yeah, it's hard to imagine the phrase, my goodness, look at how he's spotted working better than they make it work here. But maybe. Cute dogs. Love a dog Muppet. Yeah. Sure. And this is happening, like, on the same rotating set uh, and basically concurrently with the, the jogging song that we got in last week's UK spot. So that's fun. I, I I like that in theory. I thought that was the best part about this number and about the jogging number. Another song that I could sort of take or leave. But it was like super cute. Last week, if you were paying attention, you'll remember that the jogger did encounter the, the dog walker and, and had a little tussle with the dog. And this week you see that from the dog walker's point of view. And uh, so that was some kind of neat continuity. Which the dog walker was Wayne. It is right? Yeah, it is Wayne. Yeah. Um, and it's all, yeah, it's all the same puppets as last week. It's all, all the background characters in this were the same. Is this the first time that we've ever heard Wayne get to the end of a song? <laughs> I think so. It's sort of a surprise he didn't get eaten by dogs or something. but Yeah, or run off with Uncle Deadly. It makes me wish that there were an entire universe of concurrent songs and that like we were going to get like a Mildred song next week. <laughs> also, it's a nice break from all the racism. Sadly, our international parade must continue. <laughs> Thank you.
visual that was so much yeah like when you're able to just kind of parse it it's still deranged ah <laughs> 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 <sighs> well let, let's talk about the song that they start with uh which is america from west side story uh which is from 1957 uh music by leonard bernstein lyrics by stephen sondheim it was number 35 on the afi 100 years 100 songs list which is becoming a Muppeturgy bingo drinking game <laughs> staple. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that Floyd refers to it as the domestic product. <laughs> Floyd gives a really sweet introduction where he, he appreciates what Kermit is trying to do. I think he says the, our froggy foreman. It's His regard for Kermit in this episode is also very sweet. And then he wants to include the domestic product along with the international vibes. I like it. Yeah, and uh, to to get as much of that medley as I could into the clip, uh, I had to really cut off the, in my opinion, the best part. But I I love this arrangement of America. I could have listened to the Mayhem play America all the way through very happily. Yeah, honestly, that's one of the the great things about the score of West Side Story is a lot of those songs are really malleable. Like there's a really great Dave Brubeck version of Maria that I was reminded of. Mm-hmm. I, I wish it had just been that. <laughs> Yeah, or instead of all this other nonsense, I like the other nonsense, especially in an episode where so much of the international stuff is is racist. This seemed like the least racist iteration of the international festival. So, yeah, I I was going to say that too. I mean, I think that we we see the witch doctor puppet here, and he's problematic, (laughs) but I I think that's kind of it, right? I think it's kind of okay. Yeah, he's correct me if I'm wrong. First. Right. He was he He's was the, the first, first of many intruders so. in the song and the, the Electric Mayhem is displeased by how many people are walking in on their song but when he walks in and starts uh I I don't know what kind of drum to say he's banging on but if if like he comes in with the bongo rhythm it actually matches up to America pretty well. <laughs> and then yeah, Manamana grooving on a little ukulele. Little and little the, hula the music chef. apparently. Manamana's Hawaiian, who knew? Who knew? The chef with the concertina. And you know what? Bagpipes and Havanagila actually cancel each other out. I was surprised that I enjoyed it. <laughs> so aside from the, the actual witch doctor puppet, I actually kind of dug this. Weirdly, this is the second international fusion Havanagila moment I've had this week. <laughs> Were you listening to the Harry Belafonte one? Um, no, I... Uh, I remembered years ago that there is there's a very good Mexican restaurant in Corona Queens called Tortilla Ria Next to Mall. Oh yeah, famous. And yeah, very very good. And before the first time I went there, my my friend Nick was like, "Oh, we have to go there." It, they I I kept misunderstanding him cuz I what he was trying to say was they make their own masa, but I kept hearing matza and I was like, "They're a Mexican restaurant." 
and they make matzah. And he's like, no, no, ma. And, and fi- I finally figured out what he was saying. But for years, we were referred to it as taco nagila because I was convinced that he was like <laughs> taking me to a <laughs> Jewish Mexican fusion restaurant. I'd be down. Yeah, I was like, honestly, that sounds great, but that's not what it is. It's just a place that makes their own uh, tortillas. <laughs> I mean, Mexico sure on 83rd Street, not bad. Hmm. While we're on the subject of Havnagila, there is a great documentary from 2012 about the history of the song, which it's short. It's uh, maybe 70 minutes, and it's a lot of fun. You can rent it for four bucks on Amazon, and uh, if learning like if that sort of cultural history documentary kind of thing appeals to you i highly recommend it neat uh just to close the loop on my earlier pedantry a a different uh puppet or at least a different costumed uh puppet is uh that the trumpet melody is uh harabe tapatio which is better known as the mexican hat dance uh he is in i believe a mexican costume so good job (laughs) Wasn't it also the Russian pigs who were also playing the Mexican hat dance? The Russian pigs, according to the wiki, are playing. Uh, yes, they are playing uh, La Raspa, uh, which is a different uh, a different piece of music. But the the two are often played together and are sort of known collectively as the Mexican hat dance. So yeah, that doesn't make a ton of sense, but it's kind of cute. The Hawaiian bit doesn't seem to be a, a specific song, but we also get a little bit of uh, "See Me Dance the Polka," which is used on the show to be like here's a swedish thing even though it's not really a swedish song (laughs) so (laughs) just doing great all around yeah well speaking of doing great all around do it yeah all all around everywhere emphasis on the round let's just rip the band-aid off and play it is a parade of the nations featuring our guest star mr spike milligan and dedicated to one of our very favorite countries disneyland Ladies and gentlemen, it's a small world. You know the rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about It's a Small World. This is the one thing that I was genuinely excited to talk about in this episode because I I, I know a lot about it. I've been doing what? research. It's <laughs> shocking. By, um, by going to their favorite I, country, Disneyland? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. for that reason, but also because I've been doing research for a very long time uh, on a, a project that I'm working on about the 1964 World's Fair, uh, which is where the song originated. This is, in fact, a, a song from a ride of the same name called It's a Small World. Heard of it. Yeah, I, I would hope so. That was originally a part of the UNICEF Pavilion at the 1964 New York World's Fair. And the UNICEF Pavilion was sponsored by Pepsi. And the funny story about this is that Pepsi really kind of waffled and dithered as to like how they wanted to contribute to the world's fair. They knew that they wanted to be a part of it. This particular world's fair for reasons that I could do an entire podcast on had a really strong corporate presence, like American corporation presence and Pepsi procrastinated. And so 
less than a year out, they were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And as it turned out, the CEO of Pepsi was married to Joan Crawford. And she said, let me talk to Walt Disney. (laughs) And Walt Disney uh, had already started working on contributions for other pavilions. He did the great moments with Mr. Lincoln for the Illinois pavilion, for one example. And so Disney was like, yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. And so uh, because Pepsi was partnering with UNICEF, they wanted a children of the world ride. And the original plan for it was that as you rode through the ride, you were going to hear the national anthems of all the represented countries, which as it turns out, creates a nightmare of noise. (laughs) (laughs) So they were like, okay, we need to like come up with a song that can represent all of them. And so Disney turned to Richard and Robert Sherman, who were on staff for him. Uh, They wrote among other things, the score of songs for Mary Poppins. And this uh, was written not long after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. So there's like a tinge of sadness to the song that reflects the Cold War tension and fear, which I have always found kind of moving. The ride was a huge, huge hit. And uh, after the two years of the New York World's Fair, it was moved to Disneyland and was then also replicated at other Disney parks around the world, uh, first at Walt Disney World in Florida, and then at Disneyland Paris, Tokyo Disneyland, and Hong Kong Disneyland. And because of it being in all of these places and playing approximately 1,200 times a day, (laughs) Time Magazine, uh, on the 50th anniversary of uh, the ride in 2014, did the math and figured out that it was the most publicly played song of all time because yeah that it worked out to nearly 50 million public plays <laughs> so yeah don't think about that too hard cuz it's kind <laughs> of uh, weird and upsetting sort of like <laughs> how it is represented on this show although there are things about it that are are i think charming before it goes off the rails i i like the homages to the ride itself yeah that part is great yeah the 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 balloon that goes up and down with the rat in it is great just having them do sort of the repetitive motions of the animatronic doll yeah yeah i mean Mm -hmm. when it gets to uh statler and waldorf doing it i that was the one point that i actually like genuinely lost it and there's little stuff right because they need they need like a lot of muppets to make this happen so like there's a snoth in a in a wig that just like i don't know it just cracked me up like <laughs> yeah it's just so stupid and it's just a great image there's um, group wearing what looks like marvin suggs's outfit <laughs> <laughs> yeah also just like on a meta level like the fact that you know one of the things that kept them up at show off of streaming for so long and, and off of dvd and all of that is like music rights and that the fact that at the time like you know disney Maybe it was easier back then. I don't know that they were just like, we want to do this. And Disney was like, okay, sure. (laughs) Even (laughs) that is surprising to me. That part's great. Yeah. But then. Then there's Mike Milligan. (sighs) What is happening? He keeps popping up in various racist costumes. I'll say that. much. Although for much of it, he's just wearing a t-shirt that says, in Arabic, the the name of the country Kuwait. 
Right. <laughs> Which I guess was maybe a reference to something. Yeah, according to the Muppet Wiki, at least, the, the shirt that says Kuwait is a reference to Spike Milligan's show Q, and season four of his show was called Q8. I mean, the wiki says that it's a reference. I don't I don't know whether right. I believe that because I mean I yeah. Straight. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean I, I read that, but I didn't understand it. <laughs> Yeah, so Q, the first season of Q was called Q5, and then each successive season, the number went up. I don't know why it started with Q5, but it did. Gotcha. But yeah, but then he also appears in some offensive costumes uh, and facial appliances. Um, but also, like, he he spent a lot of time with like his hand inside his t-shirt, flailing around, and I just, I just didn't know what he was doing, like, or why. Yeah. And then deciding at the end that he was going to take a nap and yell at every first he says he doesn't want to leave because he's having too much fun and then he just lies down on the stage and throws stuff at kermit when kermit tries to end the episode well and that actually feels like a structural problem with the whole skit because the the song doesn't end like by design the song never ends that's the point of the song for thousands and thousands of plays Right. Like, Although, you know, there is a version that has an ending that we've all heard on Disney's Greatest Hits. I have never heard that version. Uh, but I... So, I mean, I, I, think, I, think they, I think they legitimately had a problem that they didn't know how to end the sketch. I don't think that was the right choice of how to end it. But, like, also, before that, he does a Nazi salute. Why? Why? I mean, Why? Why? I don't think there's Why? a good reason to. I understand what bit he was trying to do where he was just trying to put on a lot of different hats and do a lot of different accents and be like, look at me, as you know, parade one man parade of nations. But that's not a good reason yeah, but that's to do not a, how you represent a thing. That. Yeah. yeah. It's not how you represent that nation in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I wasn't I horrified by it. Extremely upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I were German, I would be extremely upset. And yeah. Ugh. Jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? So let's talk about some show business. We have an editorial from Sam the Eagle, who has a few things to say about, quote, our friends the British. Uh, Unfortunately, he says them with the help of Spike Milligan. How do you do, sir? Well, I'm coming at Frog and Toad Dark. See the big brandy eye. I'll give you a few words. Don't tell my Queen Elizabeth II. What? No, 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 no. Please, sir, you are not speaking the Queen's English. Why should I? She never speaks any of mine. There goes the knighthood. Glad QE2 gets a shout out. I will say this for Spike Milligan. Whatever the heck it is he's doing, he is committed. He He's doing this manic mile a minute shtick. And it's almost totally unintelligible, but he's very devoted to it. But I mean, in this case, that's the joke, right? He's doing, yeah. co- he's doing, quote unquote, Cockney. But the point is that you can't understand him. Yeah, but even when he's not doing Cockney, he's still doing this. Right. I yes, I guess that's true. But like in this case, like that's the right. It, it, Sam is expecting Lawrence Olivier because Sam thinks that that's what all English people sound like, and mm-hmm. then here comes Spike Milligan. Yeah, and drops his pants. I, I liked this for a while. I thought it went on too long. Yeah, I, I didn't, you know. I didn't like the end of it, but I, I kind of, and I, I do, I, I wonder if they thought like, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll kick it off by making, well, I, they kicked it off with Oklahoma, but um, you know, <laughs> then we'll make fun of uh, Brits and Americans. So we're fine, <laughs> which is not true. But I think, I think that maybe was what they were thinking. 
And as much as, I don't know, I don't feel like dropping your pants is necessarily a joke. And like they first they reveal that he has Union Jack boxers and then he does it again. He has American flag boxers. Like, all right, fine. But I did appreciate the sound design that went into it because they they needed to have a sound effect that indicates that pants are being dropped so that when Statler and Waldorf do it later and you hear the sound effect, you can infer that pants are being dropped. Good thought there. There was one thing in this sketch that I really liked, which was that Spike (laughs) gets really annoyed with Sam and calls him all manner of names. He calls him, you fool of an eagle, an eagle creep. I appreciated that. Maybe I would find that funnier if he wasn't yelling at everybody. This whole episode, he yells at New Zealand, he yells at Kermit. I don't know. Yeah, this was early on, so I wasn't I wasn't this yeah. turned off yet. Terrific! Ah, that's not clever. Anyone can drop their pants. I didn't know you were Lithuanian. Did, did anyone understand that joke? Is he wearing Lithuanian flag boxers? That, that I think, is the joke. Okay. But it definitely feels like it's some commentary on his penis, right? Like, well, yeah, and it does. Then, then, like, Waldorf looks like looks away, all all embarrassed. It is a good embarrassed stance. What does the Lithuanian flag look like? A dick. <laughs> horizontal colors of yellow, green, and red. It actually looks. If if you had showed it to me and not told me, I would have guessed that it was like an African pride flag. Hmm. Anyway, on to the Muppet News Flash, which is unfortunately also conveyed with the help of Spike Milligan. Good evening, and welcome to Muppet News International. Yes, sir, welcome to it. <laughs> Simultaneous translation, bringing you news and views across the language barrier. Hello. Are you going to tell them what I just said? No, your secret is sacred. He keeps doing this shtick and acting out what the newsman is saying and gets into a violent brawl with himself. He also punches a sheep at one point. This goes places. I just think it, it fundamentally misunderstands what makes Muppet Newsflash funny. Which is, right, it's like two lines, something bad happens to the newsman, we're out. <laughs> Curtain opens, newsman does something funny. <laughs> Curtains close. It's also a ripoff of a Saturday Night Live. Bit, the the Garrett Morris uh, translating for the hard of hearing, where he just shouts everything. Oh yeah, that doesn't sound funny. No, I mean it's not. It has not aged well either, but it's still. Spike Milligan still yelling all fashions before the newsman falls from the ceiling. That that amused me once I figured out what the heck was going on on my third watch. All right, shall we close this out with the intergalactic nonsense here? <sighs> If we must. All right, let's do this. So Kermit introduces this sketch as the intergalactic brotherhood of man, including things, uh, which Muppet Wiki describes as, quote, a very random and incomprehensible sketch, including Spike, New Zealand, and a window shade. Okay, so Accurate. this is Spike Milligan in his PJs opening and closing window shade. And every time he opens and closes it, it shows different settings outside. He also tries to murder a chicken <laughs> He insults New Zealand, and he gets attacked by Kuzmanians. And let's listen to a clip of one of the the few bits that make any sense. 
It is very gratifying to see him get hit by a bunch of fish. When he opens the window and says, now it's comedy o'clock outside or whatever he says, and then a bunch of stuff falls. Is Are they footballs? Are they rubber balls? Is it something else? What falls on him? Eggs, aren't they? Big red eggs? Yeah, brown eggs. Maybe. I think they're, I haven't, I haven't made the Because then the chicken yet. comes through, right? Isn't that what's going on there? It's like I the thought they were eggs. balls. Oh. I thought they were balls because then when New Zealand is like, hey, mister, can we get our chicken back? It's like when there are like kids playing with balls. You know what? I implied that any part of this sketch made sense. I would like to retract that statement. I mean, because it's all downhill from here. It just becomes yelling and, and I mean, the Kuzbanians who are always adorable, but like, I mean, and uh, it is not racist. I will give it that much, <laughs> but it's not funny either. Yeah. Although it is also gratifying to see him get attacked by Kuzbanians. It sort of seemed like he just shut up high and, and just like did this, but there are Muppets. There are special effects. The the outside the window is, is chroma keyed. So they had to have planned this, right? He must have like sat down in a writer's room and did this with them. And, and just, just why, why? Well, but he was also very infamous for his improvisation. So I'm sure that he's going off script here at times, but Given how crazy the script is, it's hard to say. Yeah, which but like even structurally, this doesn't make any sense. Like within what we know a Muppet Show episode to be, like I can justify most of what happens in this episode. Not this. Anyway, friends, if you're considering watching this episode, might I suggest that instead you search YouTube for the Muppets reenact the Continental Congress? And watch the Muppets' appearance in the 1982 Norman Lear special, I Love Liberty. So that, rather than watching the intergalactic brotherhood of man including things, uh, you could instead watch the Muppets dressed as the Founding Fathers and singing this in a far superior sketch. What else? Song Get that guy! There is a brotherhood of men. Benevolent Brotherhood of Men. A noble tie divides all human hearts and minds into one Brotherhood of Yay! I thought that would be a better note to go out on. I just wanted to have a little palate cleanser before we end this episode. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what was that? It was very strange. It was very weird. It was peculiar. It was kind of amusing. Yes, it was rather funny. It was incredibly funny. I loved it. Hilarious. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Hard disagree. I, I disagree with them, but I do like Waldorf yelling. We like that strange man. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for a discussion of the Leslie Uggams episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on whatever social media still exists at this point at Muppeturgy, 
or on the web at MuppetJersey.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Are, are we still here? Yeah. Yes. No, I, I, <laughs> Great. Nothing to add. I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> okay. <laughs>